Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Well, uh, do ask, uh, do tell, uh, let's talk. Uh, And the question uh, that many of you may be asking uh, with many different aspects of vocal inflection is why did he write this book? Um, You know, you may ask that inquisitively. Uh, You may ask that question with skepticism. You may ask that question with uh, a sense of mistrust. You might ask that question with a sense of relief. Uh, There are any number uh, of connotations with which uh, we could ask the question, why why did I write this book? Uh, And the reason I think that's important in a setting like this for us to ask is because the reason that I wrote the book is what you can reasonably expect uh, to get from the book. Uh, And so if you were to ask me, uh, Brad, why why did you write, uh, do ask, do tell, let's talk? Um, I would say the first reason Uh, is because I was asked to. Uh, Both uh, directly and indirectly, um, there was a conversation with a friend who said, uh, you know, Brad, I I think something's missing out there in the resources that are available, uh, and and I think you would be a good person to do that. Um, And I wasn't initially keen on the idea uh, because I don't tend to like controversy and uh, I think I'm a sweet little S personality who would prefer to go unnoticed, and so that's not uh, what golden retrievers do, uh, is write books on subjects like uh, this. Uh, but then I thought about the number of people that I'd had conversations with in a counseling context, uh, where they would say, I feel safe talking to you, but I don't know how to have this conversation with other people. And so basically what counseling is without friendship uh, is it's like being stranded in the middle of the ocean and for one hour a week you're given a life raft where you have an opening that you can talk to and the the rest of the week feels like you're just asked to dog paddle, to swim, to make it, to keep your head above water. Uh, And so with that, I I wrote the book because I was asked to uh, and because as I thought about it, I wanted the church to be a community uh, where, uh, especially those who experience unwanted same-sex attraction, feel safe. Like they can, this is one of the things that's on the table that we can talk about. Um, and so uh, the audience for my book, uh, if you were to say, okay, why, that's why you wrote, who are you writing to? Uh, I am writing to uh, the average church member who uh, is opposite-sex attracted uh, in their natural uh, inclination, and they, they want to be a better friend and ambassador uh, for those that they've gotten to know who experience same-sex attraction or maybe have uh, embraced a gay identity. And they say, I, I feel like Christ has called me to be salt and light and a good ambassador wherever I go. And I, I know what we believe. I'm not sure how to represent that well. Uh, And and so that is the audience uh, and the objective. Uh, The objective is uh, to remove uh, a lot of the theological uh, and emotional barriers uh, that a lot of us may have from developing friendships like this. Uh, Now, I would say my book is not, it's not a relationship manual. Uh, And so if you have a friend, maybe somebody in your small group or somebody that you work with, this is not necessarily a book that you go through chapter by chapter, step by step, and it's a conversation guide for the two of you. Uh, I don't think there would be anything wrong uh, with a book like that. Uh, That just doesn't happen to be uh, the way that I chose to approach the subject. Uh, But for those of us who would say, I I want to represent Christ well to to friends and family members and co-workers who experience same-sex attraction, but there's just some things inside that are uncomfortable or some beliefs that I have that make it feel like it would be hard for me to do that. I would love it uh, if this book could help 
remove some of those barriers. Uh, and so I give you here uh, kind of a quick summary. This is a, a six-chapter book. Uh, as you look at it, uh, it's meant to be fairly thin and non-intimidating. Um, and to overview what's there, uh, the first chapter is just trying to give us uh, some helpful vocabulary. Uh, how do we talk about this? Uh, and to help us see the problem of silence. Uh, don't ask, don't tell doesn't work. If the policy of the church is don't ask, don't tell, then when somebody grows up in the context of the church, and maybe from around puberty forward, they begin to realize my sense of attraction is not necessarily like everybody else's. But you can't talk about this. This is a debate. This is not a conversation. And so, maybe you've grown up in church in silence because of that unspoken rule of don't ask, don't tell for a decade or more. And you just go, everybody else gets to talk about their struggle. When do I get to talk about mine? And so I want us to see the problem of silence. Uh, the second chapter is trying to get comfortable with uncomfortable subjects. And so I want us to look at some aspects of inaccurate, oftentimes unspoken, but commonly held theology and some of the personal obstacles that we might have uh, to building friendships like this. Uh, in the third chapter, uh, I want us to get to know uh, some, of the, some of the common experiences when somebody um, wrestles with same-sex attraction. Things like what it's like to have a secret, uh, the myth of choice, and the fact that it's not all about sex. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 kind of take a, a different angle. Uh, chapter 5 is uh, more of someone who is a, a believer, and so we might say they struggle with same-sex attraction. And so they experience this, but it is unwanted. It doesn't match their values and belief. And they would say, I struggle with this. Uh, chapter 5 is more to how do we have the conversation when uh, somebody says, I don't struggle with it. I experience it. Maybe I've even embraced it as an identity. Uh, but how are those conversations different? And then chapter 6 uh, is navigating difficult conversations. Uh, and if you take the opportunity to read the book, my guess is that will either be your most or least favorite chapter. Uh, I don't know how it goes in the middle because what I attempt to do there uh, is to give an annotated conversation where we wrestle with a lot of the hard topics that may come up. Um, but uh, And I give you a chance just to critique it. And you, you may get to that part and go, that sounds so much like Brad. I don't talk like that. He's not normal. Um, it, uh, and that's okay. I'm not. Um, but um, Or you may say, it's really helpful just to hear some of these principles walked out in conversation. But either way, you get to mark all over that chapter. You're invited to do it uh, throughout. Uh, now, as you look at your notes, uh, you can probably tell one of my ministry philosophies uh, is that I'm OCD, so you don't have to be. Uh, I put as much down in writing so that you don't get hand cramps when I talk fast. Uh, what you have in your hand is about 7% of the total book. Uh, and my, my goal, if you were to ask what is one of the things from a, a forum like this that you would get, I hope you get a vocal quality and a tone of conversation, as much as you get content. Uh, because when I pick up a book from somebody that I haven't heard them talk, I don't know how to read them. I read them in the voice of whatever it is I associate with them, or with the topic at hand, which with a book of this nature can be kind of hard. And so I would love for you to just, in the same way that uh, if you're here in our Summit family and you've heard our pastor J.D. preach and then you, you read his book, you read his book in his voice. I, I would like to give you a voice and a, uh, and a tone in which to read, uh, do ask, do tell, let's talk, uh, if you choose to do that. And so, kind of overviewing the material here, uh, chapter 1, uh, we start to look at some vocabulary. Uh, and I think it is helpful as we think about the subject of homosexuality uh, to differentiate um, same-sex attraction uh, from gay identity and homosexual behavior. Uh, now, this is not a neutral distinction. Uh, and uh, the more unwanted uh, the experience of same-sex attraction is, 
the more open to these distinctions that an individual may be, uh, the more somebody embraces a gay identity, the more this just doesn't make sense to them because it all feels like one thing. Uh, But when we say same-sex attraction, uh, what we mean is we're simply defining the experience uh, that you find members of the same gender attractive uh, to the point of being arousing or romantically captivated. Uh, And the vast majority of the time, this experience is not chosen. I mean, if I, if I could flip the question, if you experience opposite-sex attraction, when did you choose that? Do you remember going, I, if you're a guy, I think I'm going to like girls now. Uh, or if you're a girl, I, I think it's time for me to be into guys. Um, this is not something that we choose. And in that sense, I think the the most helpful category for us to think of unwanted same-sex attraction uh, is as a form of suffering, uh, an effect of the fall uh, that, that we wrestle with, that makes life harder. It is a context for uh, temptation. Uh, but in the midst of that, uh, what God offers uh, is comfort and strength. Uh, it is much more of the come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, find rest for your souls. Um, it, uh, and I think one of the benefits when I've had conversations with individuals who experience unwanted same-sex attraction, and it's hard in the midst of the conversation for them to even look up and look me in the eye because there's a sense of shame, and they just, look, I know I am just an abomination before God, and, and he, he, he hates me. And uh, they're kind of referencing those Leviticus passages, uh, and I would invite you to go back and look at those. Because if you look at them, God's pretty clear. He, what he calls an abomination is behaviors, not people. God longs to redeem people from every form uh, of sin and destruction uh, that we can find ourselves into. Uh, and what we want to do is to be an ambassador of that and represent it well. And so there's same-sex attraction. Uh, there is embracing a gay identity. Um, you know, when same-sex attraction becomes an I am statement, uh, that's when uh, we've embraced a gay identity. Uh, and this is where a lot of the cultural conversation uh, oftentimes begins to break down. Because in almost every other area of cultural conversation, if we reduce a person to a, a single facet of who they are, uh, that is considered prejudicial. If we reduce someone to their race, to their gender, to their economic status, to any other facet of their personhood, we say, this is who you are and this must define you. Uh, That that is rightly met with great resistance. Um, For reasons that uh, are somewhat understandable, somewhat maybe not. In this area, it seems as if someone doesn't embrace that, then they're not being true to themselves. Uh, And all we're saying here uh, is that we don't have to turn verbs into nouns. Uh, Not everyone who runs is a runner. Uh, Not everyone who fails is a failure. Uh, Not everyone who experiences same-sex attraction has to embrace a gay identity. Uh, And this is where we would say uh, identity is a choice. And a choice that should be made on a basis of more factors uh, than a pervasive sense of of uh, attraction. Uh, And then there is homosexual behaviors, uh, which is again where we make a choice uh, to engage in sexual practices uh, that are stimulated by members of the same gender. And this is again where we would say uh, it is a choice and a matter of our responsibility. Uh, But there's a different kind of awkwardness and stigma uh, that enters the conversation here. Um, Because unfortunately, Uh, If something has uh, the description of same-sex or homosexual in it, it's almost as if we treat it as if it's more icky. Uh, It's as if same-sex pornography is dirtier than heterosexual pornography. Uh, It's as if same-sex sexual sin is worse than sexual sin of an opposite-set gender pairing outside of marriage. And, And that's where that Uh, undue weight of condemnation uh, and sense of shame often comes in that makes it very hard 
uh, to talk about these things. Uh, And you can see that takes us into the second chapter, which is how do we become comfortable having uncomfortable conversations like this? Um, And I think one of the one of the areas that has made it difficult uh, is uh, what I would consider to be a misinterpretation of Romans chapter 1. Not that it is never applicable, uh, but that it is just not the majority experience of those who experience same-sex attraction. Uh, And Romans 1 is, uh, you know, we've got it there in front of you, therefore God gave them up to their lust uh, of their heart to impurity. Uh, You uh, can go on and read the passage there, but Uh, What we often do with this is we create what I would call a uh, progressive sexual depravity model. Uh, And in this model, the logic goes something like this. All sexual sin starts as heterosexual sin. Um, And, uh, I mean, that's what's natural. That's what we all start with. We come hardwired that way. I mean, we just kind of know this. There's, There's no way that the fall could actually disrupt Um, you know, and somebody might experience unwanted same-sex attraction. And so what happens is, is milder heterosexual sin increases in intensity and frequency and duration, trying to get that same initial satisfying effect. And then with time, even more egregious sexual sins are needed to get the same high. Um, And we begin to see that this is kind of working within an addictions motif and It's as if all of this is about uh, the thrill of orgasm more than the uh, comfort of intimacy. Uh, And eventually, uh, homosexual sins are experimented with uh, as a way to get some kind of new, high, stimulating experience. Uh, And then eventually, uh, what begins as experimentation uh, becomes an orientation. When God gives them over uh, to the lust of their heart. And when we think of homosexuality in this way, then the person who experiences same-sex attraction begins to be perceived as dangerous to us. Because, I mean, this is somebody who's like right in the throes of sexual addiction, right? I mean, they're on the brink of pedophilia. I mean, when you use a progressive sexual depravity mindset and this is the only way that somebody gets there is through delving deeper and deeper into sexual sin and then God finally says, look, I'm done with you. What else can I do? Um, somebody who experiences same-sex attraction is dangerous if that's the only way uh, that you can get there. Uh, but if you've had the opportunity to have conversations and, and somebody says, look, I, I experienced same-sex attraction, then I, I don't want it. And from my experience, when, when the conversation has gotten outside of a political debate, I have, ne- I have yet to meet anyone who would say, I want to experience same-sex attraction. Every person that I've ever talked to, and it may be biased by um, the ministry circles that I'm in, but they would say, if you gave me a choice, I'd much rather have a spouse of the opposite gender. Uh, I would rather have biological children of my own. I don't want to live with social stigma. I wish this drama wasn't part of my life. But if the only representatives that we know of those who experience same-sex attraction are not conversations that happen in a living room and a dinner table, but are just what we see on television, it would be hard for us to embrace that, to accept that. In the same way that if all somebody who was a part of the gay community knew was the representative of Christianity that they see on television, they might have a different view of us. Uh, And that's uh, that's why conversations are going to be vitally important. Uh, and again, there's lots of obstacles that we could look at in terms of thinking through navigating some of the difficulties here. Um, I think if most of us are honest, we don't like having conversations we can't fix. Uh, and some of you are already disappointed with this presentation because it doesn't sound like I'm going to fix it. You know, I thought we were going to have an answer to this, and it didn't say, uh, unless he takes a big curve, we ain't going there. Um, and we're not. And so I don't like to get into conversations when I don't feel like there's a fix-it outcome on the backside. People may think I'm gay. I mean, if I go out and have lunch or coffee with a friend of the same gender and they experience same-sex attraction, um, you know, what would people think of me? If I don't know the answer, do I have to change my views? You know, if they raise a point that I can't rebuttal, 
Well, that's the whole gotcha mentality that just turns conversations in debate, into debates from the jump. I mean, how many people ever change their views because of a gotcha moment? I mean, if you're talking to a friend, they experience same-sex attraction, you're having a conversation, and you go into the sampling biases of genetic twin studies, and they go, oh, wait, you mean sampling biases? I made this whole thing up. A gotcha moment doesn't bring any comfort. It doesn't change. It's going to be a conversation. I might be offensive and not know it. And that's just true. Uh, That is one of my biggest prayers and concerns. And I I just say publicly here, if if there is something that, that I say that is offensive, please give me the grace of letting me know. I... Um, I desperately don't want to do that. I, I feel like I've probably had more conversations than the average Christian in this kind of area, but I, I don't pretend to navigate this conversation perfectly, and there is plenty uh, that I still have to learn. And so I, if I do say something, please know that I want to hear it um, when you bring that to me. Uh, and then the last one here we'll go into a little more. We might say, doesn't the Bible supposed to say I'm not supposed to associate with sinners like this? Um, and that might just be a prejudicial statement, or it may be one where we say, ah, I was, I was reading 1 Corinthians 5. And it's, Paul says, I wrote to you my letter uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, um, anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Um, well, the first thing I would say is when we look at that passage, let's look at what else is on the list. Um, any idolaters in the room? Anybody fails to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Uh, anybody here tempted to cheat on your taxes? Uh, anybody here who... If you don't like somebody, you can slam them and tear them down with your words. Um, And so I give you a chart here. Uh, And the purpose of that chart is to help us see where a passage like this is relevant and where it's not. Uh, And so if you look across the top, uh, there's kind of three columns. Uh, There's non-Christians. There's those who are exploring faith and professing Christians. Uh, Well, based upon the line there, uh, anyone who bears the name of brother, uh, this would only be relevant for a professing Christian. Um, There's nothing that says we can't have engaging conversations with our friends and classmates and uh, neighbors uh, just because of an area of sin in their life. Uh, And then as we look at the the form that that's taking, uh, we look at it here, uh, does experiencing temptation disqualify us from relationship? No. Uh, Succumbing to temptation? I would say no. Repeatedly falling? Okay, that's probably going to change the nature of the conversation. And then when someone just says, I no longer call this wrong. I believe this is okay. Uh, I think that's the point where this passage is most clearly applicable. And in a context like this, if you were to look at that and say, Brad, what is it that you want us to get? Uh, here, would be, here would be my point. If we become more effective in the white spaces, in the blank spaces, we'll have a lot fewer relationships that get to the shaded ones. But if the unspoken policy of any given church is don't ask, don't tell, You can't talk about this. This is not a safe place for you. We don't have anything for you. This means solitary confinement for the rest of your life. Then the most committed person is probably going to bear that only for so long till they get to the point they go, what do you have for me? And then when they're angry and hurt and disenfranchised and they come out in a manner... Uh, that we might view as too celebratory, they're going to be really offended when we tell them that they should be quiet again. 
because we offered no outlet for conversation. I mean, just imagine for a moment what your experience of church would be like if week in and week out you heard opportunities to speak about every life struggle except yours. And this was supposed to be the family of God. This was supposed to be where you were due to community. This is the people that you do life with, but this is off limits. Um, that my heart in this book is that we would be more effective, more open, more safe for those early conversations at the point of unwanted same-sex attraction so that somebody could begin to see and from the beginning see that unwanted same-sex attraction is not a sentence to solitary confinement. And so, uh, let's, let's move to kind of chapter 3 material. Uh, what is the experience of same-sex attraction like? And one of the first things that I would maybe uh, give as a, as a picture of that is think about what it's like to have a secret. Uh, and I don't know if you'll do it or not, uh, but I want to invite you to write down your most secret secret. What would it be like right now on a piece of paper with people around you where somebody could look over your shoulder to write down your secret? Um, think about the way that a secret haunts. You know, when you were a kid and you had a secret from your parents and they said... Brad, come here, we need to talk. Oh no, they found out. It just haunts. Or, Brad, I'm proud of you and I love you. And I think, you wouldn't if you knew. The way that a secret just corrodes the bond and trust of every relationship. And if it wasn't just I'm not willing to share this secret, but it felt culturally unsafe to share that. I think we have a sense of the weight that somebody carries uh, when they experience unwanted same-sex attraction. And then there's the experience of, I didn't choose this. And, and this part is never as neat uh, as we want it to be uh, because there is a tangled web of factors here. Uh, and so this is where we get to that idea of uh, responsibility, sin, suffering, that kind of thing. And, and so as, as best as I can navigate that, and it's just not as neat as I would want it to be, uh, is that uh, as somebody uh, assumes a gay identity or uh, follows through on homosexual behaviors, uh, that becomes willful sin, and, and their response is post-sin repentance. But when somebody experiences unwanted same-sex attraction, uh, that's a form of temptation or suffering. Uh, and our call to them would be pre-sin reliance on God. Again, we're dependent on God for everything. There is no point. Adam and Eve before the fall were not independent of God as if they could do life without Him. We are at every moment reliant and dependent uh, on God for strength and life and joy and direction and hope and identity and everything. Uh, but this is where, in conversations that I've had with those who experience unwanted same-sex attraction, there's a sense of, of relief when they say, you know, this is the first time that I've realized I could steward my experience of same-sex attraction and have a sense that God was not disgusted at me, but proud of me, and, and could look at me and say, well done, good and faithful son. I am proud of you. You are managing this moment well. And being out from under that sense of condemnation uh, is huge. And then a, another part here that I think is worth pointing out is that um, it's not all about sex. Um, it, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, that's easy to miss. Uh, maybe a good parallel uh, would be uh, an eating disorder. An eating disorder is not all about food and thinness and vanity. Uh, it's not that those things aren't a part of it. Uh, but if you have uh, talked to someone who 
uh, struggles with an eating disorder, they'll, they'll say it's just broader than that. Um, and when somebody experiences same-sex attraction and all the Christian wants to talk about is, you think this is all about who I want to sleep with? I can remember talking to a teenager and uh, he was so frustrated because when he talked to his parents, he said, great, now they think I'm a slut who wants to sleep with every man I see. As if the only thing that same-sex attraction meant was, I've got an out-of-control libido. Which is kind of that progressive sexual depravity. It's like, I just... Who do I feel close to? Who do I trust? Who do I want to confide in? There's a a lot more to this uh, than sex. Now, uh, the next two portions here, uh, as we just try to to overview the content, and I know I'm I'm creating more questions than I'm answering for many ways, and I don't know that a 100-page book answers all the questions uh, that we're we're raising here. Um, But what would be the Christian experience. The person who would say, I struggle with same-sex attraction. This violates my my values. Well, I give you kind of a a road map, kind of a journey that's common. Uh, It's not that this maps out every person's experience. Uh, But there's kind of that initial moment of, I realize I experience same-sex attraction. Uh, You know, you, you... Whenever that sense of kind of romantic interest comes up and it's like, wait a second, my, my mind, my heart is not responding like my same gendered peers. And there's a sense of alarm and unrest. Uh, there's behaviors. Uh, you know, it, it may be something like pornography, but even before pornography, you just begin to kind of experiment and, you know, you, you want to pass notes or you have conversations. It, it doesn't have to be sexual to be uh, trying to uh, just... Figure out what does it mean to have romantic interest when this hasn't really been there for me. Then you get to questions of identity. How much of my life does this explain? I mean, is this like the centerpiece that connects all the dots for me? Is this uh, one facet of my life amongst many? Uh, the milestone of disclosure. Uh, when, when I confide this into another person, I mean, if you think about the first time you told somebody who you like liked uh, and how nervous and sweaty-palmed and how awkward that entire conversation is, um, it, uh, this aspect of disclosure is more intense than that. The establishment of a same-sex relationship kind of being the, the culmination of that journey. Uh, and if you say, what do we do with this? Uh, in the book, I give you some conversation guides, but I give you some general principles here. Start the conversation where you're invited. Your friend is under no obligation to start at point number one. They don't have to start telling you their story from the beginning. They can tell you their story of whatever is relevant for them at that moment. Don't try to intrude beyond where you're welcome. You know, whatever aspect that they're talking to you about, um, just try to be informed enough, and that's what I'm trying to do through the, the book, is to give you something where... One or two informed, caring questions will carry a conversation a long way. And as you show that you're comfortable and informed, you'll get invited into more of their story. uh, To where you will get to have the opportunity to bring salt and light and grace and hope to other parts of their story as they find that you're safe at the part that they've welcomed you into. Again, especially when we're talking about Uh, Christian-to-Christian relationships here, I think an important question is how do we avoid reducing people to a struggle? Uh, Because one of the things that I think is important to remember, you'll never talk to a subject. You will only talk to a person. We discuss topics. We debate topics. We talk to people. And at no point do I want to reduce someone to a facet of their life. And so, you know, how do we do that? Have fun together. Um, (laughs) Mutual enjoyment is an excellent indicator that friendship is not devolving into a project relationship. Go broad, not narrow. There's probably um, a lot more important things to study together 
uh, than just what the Bible has to say about same-sex attraction and homosexuality. Uh, you're only going to study that so many times. And as if that is all that God has cared about in their entire life. Um, you know, be willing to, to study and have a broad discipleship relationship there. And third, and maybe as important as any of the others, let them speak into your life. Um, it, the friends that I have who experience same-sex attraction, uh, they are some of the kindest, most perceptive people who value relationships deeply. Uh, some of the most enjoyable conversations uh, that I have. And so, uh, give them the blessing of being a blessing to you. Um, and uh, enjoy that. Now, chapter 5, and this is kind of the secondary facet of the book, is how do we have conversations like this um, when somebody is not a Christian? Uh, maybe they're just neutrally non-Christian, not like purgatory view neutral, but just they're not anti-Christian. They're just they're open to having the conversation, or maybe they've uh, embraced a gay identity and they're a little more skeptical and resistant towards the idea of Christianity. Um, I give a potential approach here. Uh, any evangelistic strategy has strengths and weaknesses, and if we use it uh, like a roadmap and this is what we're supposed to do, and it becomes regimented, uh, it's going to feel awkward. Uh, but the big idea here is not to get ahead of the person in their faith journey. So I think there's kind of four levels uh, at which we can engage a conversation. Uh, facts, definitions, values, and action steps. Uh, if that sounds like it came from a Greek philosopher, it did. Um, but I'll try to give a mundane, everyday example and then bring it here. Uh, imagine you have uh, a husband and wife who are trying to decide what color they're going to paint a bathroom. Um, and, and they're having a conversation, and this is one of those classic moments where you have one topic and two conversations. And, and we're talking about the same thing, but we are not having the same conversation. And so at the level of facts, we are saying, how much money do we have to spend? How much longer do we intend to be in this house? Those are kind of facts. And then there's definitions. Is this a want or a need? You know, where do we categorize this? Is the floor about to cave in and we've got to do some stuff and we're going to have to paint it, we might as well paint it the color that we want? Or is it just it's kind of an eyesore and this looks like it comes from the 80s and the 80s aren't cool anymore? Even if they're coming back in fashion, they're not coming back in bathrooms. Um, it, then there's values. Where the wife may say, oh, but... but it, weekend after next, we're going to host a baby shower at our house, and if we're going to do this, I want to be able to show it off to my girlfriends. And, and the husband's saying, but I've got a golf trip coming up this weekend, and you were telling me you wanted me to spend some time with the guys because I don't have enough community in my life, and we need to do that. And we're trying to decide, you know, the painting project, where does it rank amongst other things? And then we get to action steps. Who's going to paint? What color? Stripes! You didn't say anything about stripes! Um, and, and so you can easily see where we're having two different conversations uh, on the same topic. And so, uh, if we're using this, again, we engage wherever our friend is. They're not obligated to start at the beginning of this journey. We try not to get ahead of them. We don't ask for a commitment that's ahead of where their theological understanding uh, and acceptance is. If we ask for a value level commitment for somebody who is still wrestling with factual aspects of whether... Uh, as we'll come to in a minute, God created the world with an intent and a design. We're ahead of them. Uh, and then as much as possible, use first-person plural language. And so what does this look like? In the area of facts, the kind of gospel conversation that we would be having there, maybe pre-gospel implication conversation, uh, do we believe that God is our creator and the designer of all things, including sexuality? Again, if, it's, if that's not part of the conversation, why are you so hung up about my bedroom? I don't care about yours. Why do Christians feel like they get to run everybody else's personal life? Well, that's the kind of thing that says we're not even engaging this conversation as if there was a 
design to things, including sexuality. And, and so if somebody's asking me that question, that's a pretty good indicator that I'm ahead of them. And, and so, again, we can, we can kind of have lots of conversations around that. Uh, then there's definitions. Do we believe that God's definition of good uh, for most of the things in our life is often very different from our natural preferences? Well, that's part of sin and the fall and broken nature that, that my heart doesn't naturally define things and pursue things the way that it ought to. But, but if the fact that this feels natural, intuitive, that I don't feel like I'm choosing, this is just kind of where I go, unless, unless I have a belief that that is a product of the fall and evidence of my broken nature that God intends to redeem, nothing else you've got to say as a Christian is going to make sense to me. Uh, and then we come to the, the third level of the conversation, which I think is often the linchpin. If you can get number three, number four is not that hard. Um, are we willing to trust that God will care for us on our journey in following Him? If I commit to God experiencing same-sex attraction, knowing that that mean, may mean I stay single, I don't know what it will mean in terms of potential future relationships and whether I might experience some opposite-sex attraction, whether I would feel the freedom to get married. I, I don't know, and, and I'm going to place my faith in Christ if this conservative sexual ethic thing that Scripture teaches is accurate. Do I think God will care for me? Can the church be a family for me? And if we haven't done a good job on the front end of these conversations where it feels safe to talk about these things, it's going to be really hard to believe that there might be a quality of life and relationship that could be satisfying. But if on this journey of talking together, they've gotten a sense that we're there and that there is a level at which they can be fully known and fully loved, and this isn't a sense of surface-level relationship and solitary confinement for the rest of my life, it's a lot easier to trust God with number three because God's people have represented Him better. Uh, and then question four, you'll notice it kind of goes first-person singular because this is a choice we all have to make first-person. Are you willing to place your faith in God and trust Him with your life? And again, we do come to the point where every person decides what they're going to do with Christ and what He did on our behalf. Now, as we think about conversations like this, I think there's just a, a few comments that need to be made. We need to honor the right of our friend to take a break or to walk away from these conversations. If they just say, I, I need some space, I need some time, I, I, it, we need to honor that. If we overstep that bounds, it's not just that they feel like we're being offensive. We're being offensive. Um, and the closer the relationship, the harder that will be. That is infinitely easier with a classmate or a colleague than it is with a son or a daughter. Um, but it, it's important. Our role is never to change anybody. We can't change anybody's personal beliefs, much less their sexual orientation. Uh, and that's not even necessarily what salvation's about. Uh, there will be people who, for all of their days, experience same-sex attraction. You know, if I ask you, how's your pride? How's your lust? How's your greed? How's your insecurity? Did placing your faith in Christ make those temptations, those hardships, those sins, those struggles, did it make them go away? It... Uh, and so we're, it's not so much about changing orientation. Our role uh, is to be an ambassador of a message. Uh, we want to share that message by content. We want to embody that message by tone and character and friendship. Uh, demonstrating to this person what God wants for them and who He wants to be for them. So again, this book is not a strategy manual. Uh, we don't know what role God is going to allow us and give us the opportunity, the privilege to play in someone's life.
we may be the first exposure of an understanding Christian. Maybe we're the first person to plant a seed of the gospel. Maybe we see them come to faith. Maybe we get to walk an important leg of the journey. Maybe we're just a meaningful memory that is part of God's kindness that He uses to draw them. Or maybe we're a lifelong friend who this relationship becomes one of the dearest treasures, not just in their life, uh, but in our life. In whatever role that God would allow us to play, we want to be content with that and fulfill that role for as long as He allows. And so again, the last part here, um, you know, introing chapter 6 in the conversation that I let you pick apart, uh, is just answering the question, how do I actually start a conversation like this? Um, you know, because again, there's lots of different people in a room like this. Uh, there's some of you who came because you have a friend who's already uh, confided uh, this part of your life, and you go, I'm here because I want to steward this this confidence that this person has entrusted to me well. Others are here uh, maybe because you experience uh, same-sex attraction and you say, I, I, want, I want to have friends who can walk with me and help me shoulder and bear this burden. Uh, or some of you go, I, just, I hear the cultural conversations and I, I want to be a part of, of being a good ambassador. I'm just, I don't know how yet. And so a, uh, a few thoughts there. Uh, one, don't out anybody. Uh, even if you think you know, um, allow that to be their information. Allow them to share that when they are comfortable on their timetable. Uh, if, if you demonstrate a sensitivity and awareness and a safe person, there's going to be ample opportunities for you to raise that flag of peace. It, whenever a conversation comes up, uh, about the subject of homosexuality, and it comes up a lot in our culture right now. Uh, what if just as an open-ended statement, as fit that moment, you said something like this, I can only imagine how hard it would be to experience same-sex attraction and to feel like your personal life was caught up in a culture war. And whoever you talked to kind of revealed what direction you were going. And it, it felt like you were making a decision before you even got to have a conversation. That would be so hard and so lonely. You know what you just said to everybody in the room? I'm a person of peace. I could be talked to. I am more concerned about understanding and caring for a person than I am defending a position. And that's not compromising a position of whatever God says. It just says, you could talk to me. Um, and another thing you might do is study a book like this one in your small group. Uh, just to prepare a group of people to be a, a safe place for conversations like this. Uh, because by and large, what we the way that the journey generally goes is you talk to one person and you find out if that's safe. And then what if after that one person, if that one person were you, you said, you know, if you'd like, I think there's a lot more people like this in my small group. We'd love to be your friend. It's up to you what you share, when you share, how you share. Um, yet I'm fine if you want to share. I'm fine if you don't. Just my small group would be a safe place. Or maybe you study this in your small group and you find out that, oh, there's people in our small group already that struggle with this. They just haven't felt safe to talk about it. Uh, but if we could go from a one-on-one -on -one conversation to a group conversation uh, and then decide where we go from there. Um, again, as a precursor to the panel uh, that we're about to do, uh, we were intentional uh, in that uh, the members of our panelists uh, are not members of our church. And that was meant for a, a reason like this. Uh, we, we want members of our church who experience same-sex attraction to be controlled at the pace and the number of people. Uh, that those that they do life with on a day-in, day-out, week-in, week-out basis, that they can decide who they share that with and when. Uh, so 
uh, you know, through connections, we've uh, identified folks who uh, can share their story and their experience, uh, but this uh, isn't an artificial, accelerated disclosure to a larger uh, number of people. Uh, or you may say, Brad, that seems like a really big first step uh, to, to a small group where, where I don't know how many people understand what I'm going through. Uh, there's a ministry that we have in our church called G4. It's for various types of uh, recovery and support groups. There's divorce care and grief share and uh, things on uh, anger and depression and trauma and an assortment of things. And one of the groups that we have in that uh, is uh, a same-sex attraction group. It's not a reparative therapy group, uh, but it's a place where uh, I can begin to learn to tell my story and feel safe telling my story and feel a sense of comfort and support and get to the point where the idea of talking to somebody in a small group, that w- it just feels like it would be a safer half step on the way to that larger step of, of more conversations. Uh, and that's a ministry that meets on Monday nights uh, at our Blue Ridge campus. Um, but um, it, again, that would just be a step towards, uh, as a church, uh, that uh, increasingly, uh, somebody who experienced same-sex attraction would feel like, I don't have to live in silence. I can have friends. I can be known and loved. We can pursue Christ together. Um, that, that is what I would love to see uh, out of this. And so what I'd like to do is just pray, uh, and we'll use that uh, as a transition uh, to our break. Lord, we come to you. And, um, Lord, I just admit a conversation like this, um, it makes me nervous because I am sure there are things that I have said uh, that, are not, that are not just the way that I would want to say them. That, um, and so, Lord, I just pray that you would take these words, uh, that you would take this attempt uh, to equip us to be ambassador friends of yours uh, and that you would use it uh, in ways that bring honor and glory to you, uh, that it will allow us to represent you well um, to those around us. In your name we pray. Amen.